All right. Uh, we're going to finish out lesson two today. I mentioned that lesson two and three take a little longer than lesson four. And so I know we're going to squish lesson four a little bit for next week because we probably won't finish. So when I printed this out, I, fi I finished out lesson two. And then we'll, we'll have all of lesson three, at least in the notes this morning. And what we don't finish, we'll finish up next week with the finalization of lesson four. And again, we're just trying to, to put together and articulate uh, what makes Crossway unique, and some of that is, is standard every church ought to have, and some of that is um, unique to Baptistic beliefs. And again, we don't make a big deal about the name Baptist at our church, because I really, at the end of the day, a name is not important. There's a lot of well-named churches that do not please our Savior, and there's a lot of poorly named churches that please our Savior. So at the end of the day, what we really care about is that we have commitments and, and a faithfulness to the biblical expression of what it means to be a church. And, and again, doctrinal distinctives or denominational types of distinctives are standard ways of interpreting challenging texts. You know, for instance, I'm pretty committed to and believe it's biblical that we have baptism by immersion. I think that both expresses a faithfulness to the pattern of the New Testament baptisms as well as the actual linguistics of the documents of our New Testament. That baptism actually means immerse. Uh, but there are churches that do otherwise. The, they would agree that the Bible is their authority, but they disagree about interpretation. So why it's important to be a Baptist, maybe I should say better, why we are Baptists here is because that actually encompasses an approach to what we believe the Scripture says. Okay, so like I never want to communicate to our church that we should be proud of being Baptist. I'm thankful for Baptistic heritage. I'm thankful for like Spurgeon's commitments to um, good Baptist Puritan theology, right? Like he was a godly, faithful expositor of Scripture and theologian, and he and he expressed it in Baptistic beliefs. He was a um, without shame or without apology a Baptist, but at the same time, when you think of Charles Spurgeon, you probably don't think of him being a Baptist. You think of him just being a faithful pastor who preached well who was faithful to God's word over the course of decades. Um, I was listening to a podcast, and it was just kind of humbling. He preached on average like 10 to 12 times a week during the course of like 35 years or 40 years of ministry until he passed away. He passed away fairly early in, I think, his 50s, like 56. So he had about 30-some years of pastoral ministry because he started when he was very young. Man, that's a lot of preaching. And he was prolific and he was, he was Baptistic. And so when we talk about Crossway Baptist Church, usually you'll just hear me say Crossway. The, the DNA is what's important. It's important that you get this because I think this is actually biblical. So I'm going I'm to end on the one I kind of just briefly glanced by last week, and then we're going to jump into leadership. Um, that, the idea of separation is somewhat um, out of favor in our current culture. In fact, if you think about where our current culture is on the idea of separation, one of the most hostile, evil, horrible things you can do culturally to anyone is not accept them. Right? Like, like you have to accept their lifestyle. You have to use the pronouns they tell you that they want, even if those pronouns make no sense with their biological um, birth. Uh, it, it's, it's common, whether it's, it's choices or whatever, that you have some type of opinion of lack of approval is, is one of the most socially unacceptable things, behaviors for you to have. And so when I, I say separation, 
I realize it falls on a culture that, that doesn't appreciate it, doesn't actually enjoy it. And so you might find yourself saying, I'm not sure I'm totally comfortable with the idea of separation. So let me just explain what I mean by separation and why we do it. Okay, so, so I would include the idea of church separation. That is, I think, you look in the New Testament, you see um, Israel, which like religion and government are together, right? Like the king is a godly king, the priests, the prophets are all part of the civil actions of Israel. And, and so spirituality and governance is all together, right? So David shepherds Israel. That's not just like civil governance. It's also spiritual leadership. David sins. The whole of the country has a plague. Right? So, so you have the, the intertwining of, of civics and theology in the Old Testament. Then you come to the New Testament, and Jesus really clear, clearly says, Caesar has his domain. God has his domain. And you start to see that separation. You see it again like in Romans 13, where government is given the authority over the sword to enact punishment on those who do evil. And the church is very clearly called to gospel ministry, but not to be uh, entangling itself in governance. That's, that's Caesar's job. Right? So you see that really clear divide begin to develop in the New Testament. That's what we mean by separation there. It means that essentially we do not think the church should have authority over the government, nor should the government try to entangle itself in the affairs of the church. I don't think that means something like fire codes are unethical. What I think that means is when, when we come to sacred engagement of life, the government needs to have its hands off of us. So when it came to COVID stuff, I think the government quickly lost sight of that but not everything in the COVID like, authority was evil or a lack of separation. And so I think sometimes that was really challenging to figure out what, what is separation and what is not in that, that context. Let me add some more to this. We would also separate from churches that deny the gospel. All right, so you go to 2 Corinthians 5, what fellowship does light have with darkness? The point is, it's a rhetorical question, should darkness be fellowshipping with, or should light be dar- uh, fellowshipping with darkness? Right? No. That, that, that we should not be joining hands with darkness if we live in the light of the gospel. So then it requires discernment because we have to ask the question, what? What's the, what's the inevitable question that comes from that? If I consider myself to be in fellowship with the light, 1 John 1, right? We walk with him in fellowship, in, in the light of that fellowship, and I don't want to have fellowship with darkness, what does that require me to do? Separate from the darkness still requires me to know who's dark. Or maybe I could say, what is dark? Right? Like I, and I have to make that determination. If I don't make that determination, that command means nothing. So, so the church is required then to assess and declare who's living in darkness, or maybe I could say what organizations are living in darkness. So, I mean, this is low-hanging fruit, but could, could we all agree that cults, are dark? Like, like, by definition, usually there's kind of like secrecy, there's, there's unknown revelation by the outside world that's secret only to the cult, and they have this special kind of channel to their divine source of truth. I mean, it's darkness in its definition. But I would go broader than that. Um, 
I think the, count, uh, the Council of Trent made the Catholic Church very clearly more loyal to its institution, contrary to the gospel of grace. So they declared that if you believe that salvation is by grace alone, you're anathema, you're cursed. By doing so, the Catholic Church denies the gospel of God's grace and has made themselves loyal to darkness rather than light, which means we, as a church, should have no spiritual fellowship with the Catholic Church. Not because we don't love them, but in fact, because we love people, we must do this. Because to lose that clarity means we lose fellowship on the light. Does that make sense? Like, light cannot fellowship with darkness. So, so I mean, this is one of the reasons why I've never gone to the, the city prayer days, as much as I love prayer, is because generally, they, they have people from all sorts of denominations, so they have a Muslim get up and pray. Well, we should love Muslims, but you don't love a Muslim by letting them worship a false god. And, and so the, there's no way to join in spiritual partnerships with darkness and be loyal to the light. So that's one of the, like, when we, we say we believe in separation, we don't mean, like, we're going to do nothing with a good church ever. We hate them, and we want them to fail so we get more people here. That is evil. <laughs> what we mean by this is we're not going to compromise or, or make toxic the purity of the gospel by engaging in partnerships or fellowship where the truth has to be compromised or um, truth is lost in order to have that fellowship. Does that, you guys tracking with me? So if you have questions, make sure you ask because this is that type of stuff where it can sound unloving in a culture that wants to approve of everyone. Um, and, and honestly, that's, it's just such nonsense to approve of everyone. People are doing harmful things, and we should speak to the harm. If we love them, we'll, we'll tell them it's harmful. And, and we don't just embrace without critical thinking. The final one I think is, a little, is most difficult. I want you to go to 1 Corinthians 5 with me real quickly. And that is personal separation. That is, you are called to be separate from the world. Jesus, in his high priestly prayer, calls, he prays that his disciples, which would include us ultimately, would be in the world but not, yeah. You know, so there's this recognition we have that while we're engaged with living in the society of people, that we, we don't want to be corrupted by it, right? That we need to remain distinct from the sinful people we live among. And... That also means we need to be separating from sin in our own hearts and lives, repenting of it, turning from it. It's fairly hypocritical to have no fellowship with a sinner who's living in his sin while you're not repenting of yours. So, I mean, we do need to look in the spiritual mirror and be really ruthless with ourselves as part of this idea of separation. But when you come to 1 Corinthians 5, this is the person who's been uh, caught in sexual immorality. You see that in verses 1 and 2. Um, Verse 6, they're boasting about their acceptance. Look how accepting we are. Aren't we wonderful people? Your boasting is not good. Our society needs to hear that, don't we? Right? Like, here's a man caught up in sexual sin, and they're like, we accept him. We still love him. He can still join with us. Paul's like, stop it. That is not good. Your, your arrogance about accepting a sinner in his sin who's unrepented is actually harmful for him. More so, it's harmful for whom? The church. Don't you know that a little leaven or yeast leavens the whole lump of dough? Cleanse out the old leaven so that you may be a new lump 
as you really are unleavened, without, without the yeast. And sin is a metaphor for yeast, and it spreads and, and infects, the, infects the whole body or the whole loaf of bread in this analogy. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, leaven of malice and evil, but with unleavened bread of sincere uh, sincerity and truth. So he's really clear, get this sin out from you. That's the idea of separation. How many sinners were there? It's one. It's one man that they're separating from. So, so when we talk about separation, we separate not only from organizations who are living in darkness, but also from persons who embrace and hold to darkness. So if you cling to darkness and won't repent and return back to Christ and cling to him, then we have to, we have to remove you from the fellowship, right? I want, I want you to continue on, verse 9. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Let me just full stop that. Who are you not to associate with? Immoral people. Now, he clarifies, he's like, I mean, that's not a clear sentence in some ways because he doesn't tell us if they're in the church or not in the church. So then he says in verse 10, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world, other, um, of this world, or the greedy, or the swindlers, or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. Like, it totally makes sense, doesn't it? This world is filled with bad people. If you could not associate with any of those bad people, you got to go live on the moon. Like, you just can't do it. Maybe Antarctica. Like, you just can't live in this world and not associate with sinful people. He says then, I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater or reviler or drunkard or swindler. Not even eat with such a one. Now, I want you to notice association even includes something like what? Going and grabbing a burger. Meeting for coffee. Do not associate. Do not even have a meal with them. So we're talking about separation. When we have someone who is refusing to repent of sin, you can have no association with them as long as they are loyal to the identity of Christianity. So what does that tell you? Like maybe, let's say, church discipline and separation. What allows you to be able to associate with people in the world is the fact that they don't, they don't follow Christ, they don't claim to, and, and the expectation is we live among worldly people and we, we, we can have coffee with our neighbor. Otherwise, you have to leave the world. You'd never be able to eat at any restaurant if you couldn't eat around unbelievers. But what do you do if they're a so-called believer who is in life rejecting Christ, but in word saying, I follow him? What do you do with that person? What does it say you're able to do with them? What? Not even eat. Like, no association, period. Right? You guys with me? Liz? So, I would suggest to you then, if the singular purpose you're eating with them is to call them to repentance. I think Second Thessalonians might give you room for that. That seems to be, though, in timeline prior to removal and total disassociation from the church. But I, I wouldn't, like, for instance, if someone was removed from our church, you know, six months ago, 
and you have opportunity to appeal to them, and they would listen with tender, like with an open heart. I don't, I don't think there's anything in the scripture that would indicate that that association is un, unacceptable. But I, I think generally the pattern is that that was actually part of that time in which it was, it was given to the church, and the church is appealing to the person before removal. But again, I, I, I think that's not what Paul's speaking of here. I don't think Paul is saying, if you, if you go to their house to appeal with them to return back to Christ that you're associating. I don't think he's even considering that. So I, I wouldn't have a problem with that, but I don't think that's actually the context of 2 Thessalonians. Yeah, yeah, let me be, let me be blunt. We have someone we've removed from membership who's been living an immoral life and has a wedding soon coming. No Christian is allowed to go to that wedding from the Lord. And the Lord commands them not to go. I mean, unless you're going to stand up at the wedding and say, I have a reason why these two couples should not be married. If any of you has the social courage to do that, you can go. Because that would be the point, right? Like, you're going to rebuke a believer and call them back to the Lord. I mean, I don't have the social... They don't give you room. No one does that anymore at a wedding. When was the last wedding you heard that? If anyone has reason... <laughs> like, it's one of those traditional things you see, like, in some goofy movie, but no one does it anymore. And if I do your wedding, you wouldn't want me to do that. <laughs> but, but if, like, I'm going to say, say it again, this is from the Lord. For a Christian to go to that wedding is sin. Period. And just, I, I think it's so clear. Um, yes, Carol. Mm hmm. So I, I think that's a, that's a great question. Um, to be clear, the recognition of the church that they're an unbeliever is something they don't accept. Right? Like, look again at this text. They're so-called brother. So I think if, if they're identifying themselves as a brother, you have nothing to do with them until they repent. So I, I think the church discipline element is irrelevant for... for um, what they claim. It's not like, well, I know you claim to be a believer, but the church said you're not, so I'm going to act as though you're just a, um, an, a secular person and relate to you like I do my neighbors. I think the point is that the church has recognized they're not a believer. They still think they are. And the church communicates through disassociation. You're not. So I would say that's the exact case you do disassociate. Does that make sense? Um, yes. Sure. So again, I, I think, to Carol's point, I, I think the answer was, was clearly given, so let me say it again. Church discipline makes this clear. Okay, so um, we, we don't go out and have to discipline random people who say they're Christians. I, I think we recognize in a Christian nation, most people say they're Christians without any understanding of the gospel. So we're talking about like this person here was clearly communicated by the church, removed from the church. Paul says that has nothing to do with him. So that's the exact case you brought up, Carol. He still calls himself a believer. He says, don't even eat with him. Yes. I think if, if I think if they they disavow their their knowledge of and saving um, 
connection to Christ, then they do probably become an unbeliever in that sense. Um, and and I, I mean, I'm, I would be sympathetic to someone who's, um, let's say, in your home, you're married to. Right? Like, I, I don't think he's saying, then you divorce them. I, I think if you have, if your coworker gets disciplined out of the church, I don't think you have to quit your job. I, I think this is the point is, you're not offering friendship that was grounded or built in Christ. So, you know, the only reason, like, I know my wife without regard to Crossway, right? I, I know Maddie Fletcher with regard to Crossway. So, like, for me to maintain a relationship with him is, it would be a violation if he were disciplined or if I were disciplined because our relationship is on the basis of the gospel. Whereas, like, with my wife, my relationship is not a gospel relationship. It's a marriage covenant. Does that make sense? So I, I guess I would, I would, if I'm a coworker with a guy who gets disciplined out of our church, I would just make sure that my friendship with him is a work professional friendship, not a social friendship. Liz. Mm-hmm. Well, that's an interesting question. <laughs> This is a membership class. We're getting all into church discipline deeply. The point is just like cover it quickly and move on. Um, so, so I think on that case, probably what, what we should do is really clearly bring them to Scripture. I find a lot of times what people have is they have been educated by society that love is acceptance, right? And so what I'm saying sounds very unloving, and yet Christ calls us to love people. So they have these contradictory um, ethics, and so they probably feel somewhat conflicted, but the idea to cut someone off feels so unloving. Right? This is why you get like a horrible teenager living in a home with good parents, and they don't want to kick them out of the home, because to remove that child from home, you lose influence, the child is left to the world in all sorts of dangers, and uh, at the mercy of evil people, and it just, like parents get frozen in that place, right? How do you kick a kid out of the home? It feels very unloving. How do, you, how do you tell a coworker that you're not going to use the pronouns they ask for? It feels incredibly unloving. And so we have a culture that has won the preaching war. We believe acceptance is love. And then we have a church that's saying, no, acceptance is not love. So I think what I would say is, is I do think rebuke is in order, but rebuke needs to be really clearly grounded in the Scripture's text. Right? So when you come to 2 Thessalonians, and you can't associate with someone who's lazy, the issue is not like, oh, this is just that kind of red letter crimes against Christ. It's not like sexual immorality and idolatry only. We include laziness in 2 Thessalonians 3. So, so I think what we want is clarity. It's not about the severity. It's about the loyalty to Christ and the clarity of the, of the sin. So for me, Liz, I think on that person, what I'd say is a process of instruction in Scripture with rebuke, calling them to a righteous response, then we would start moving through the process of maybe multiple people coming and then ultimately saying, hey, this person is actually doing damage to the sinner in rejection to the Lord's command and in rejection to multiple confrontations, they themselves are showing themselves to be a rebel to Christ. And on the basis of their rejection of the, of the biblical command to separate, they're sinning. I don't think we have a chain reaction of separation like some fundamentalists have done in the past. I think we just deal with the issue. You're disobeying Christ's command to be separate. And on that rebellion, we're going to deal with you. Does that make sense?
So sometimes it's like, I don't know. I don't, has anyone heard the, like, kind of that chain reaction of separation stuff happening? We separate from people who don't separate from people who don't separate. It sounds like, stop. You know, just be obedient. And, and if you can't clearly show someone from Scripture why they're being disobedient, don't do the multiple tiers of separation. Separate from people who aren't obedient and refuse to be obedient. All right, let's move on. Um, I am laying groundwork, by the way, because we are in our member meeting tonight, as well as in our member meeting, not a member meeting, this morning, I'll be, I'll be just warning you guys again about that wedding by name. And, and this is a helpful discussion for us to have among the, 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 the part of our body who might hear it. Because in our, it just hits really unlovingly and harshly to tell people not to go to a wedding. Okay, leadership. How is Crossway governed and led? Every pastor, deacon, church member at Crossway gladly submits to the Lord in every matter. He, that is the Lord, is the highest rule and authority at Crossway and at every local church. Obviously, that's stated as an ideal, right? And we think in some churches, the Lord is not the highest authority. The pastor's primary, and just to be clear, that, that's a plural pastors. Like, the pastor's responsibilities are what? I'll say guesses here, but they should be very educated biblical guesses. Yes, you shepherd the flock. What else do you do? Okay, you do protect, but that's not in this list. Teaching. The third blank, right, with 1 Timothy 5 is leading. And the final one with guarding in Titus 1, or the final one is guarding, and, and that's in Titus 1.9. Okay, so think about what a pastor's role is. It's shepherding, teaching, leading, and guarding. I plan in the next couple of weeks to have a sermon on the importance of pastoral leadership in the church. Um, I, th I think generally speaking, we have a, a default idea that we should have pastors. But I think sometimes we miss how important and vital they are for the ministry of the church. And so hopefully it'll be an encouraging sermon for all of us on the, on the importance, for instance, of preaching for the health and vitality of our spiritual lives. Um, we believe that ideally the office of pastors be filled by multiple men, not just one. This is clearly the example in Acts. What are the two words that you can be, um, that you also use for pastor? Elder and overseer. And perhaps a little bit confusingly, our Constitution interchangeably uses elder and pastor, but we never use bishop. Just, or overseer, which is what bishop means. Okay, deacon. What are, what are deacons good for? That's a setup, right? They're good for nothing. No, what is a deacon good for? Do what? Okay. You almost nailed that first blank. They care for the material needs of the congregation. So, like in our church, we have something called the Grace Fund. In other churches, I've heard this called the Benevolence Fund, where there's um, needs, material needs, that the deacons have some financial wherewithal to make those decisions to help others you know, so, for instance, if some weird, you know, fluke happens in your banking and all of your accounts are frozen, you know, maybe identity theft or something and you can't pay your mortgage, you know, that, that grace fund could be used to help you not lose your house in that crisis. You know, and um, there's various needs, especially with widows and people who aren't lazy but are poor. I don't think the deacons fund or the grace fund should be used for people who are lazy and poor. Um, so, so that's some, you think it should be? Oh, <laughs> yes, yeah, no, it's, it's not used for people going to college, just to be clear. 
That would also be more particularly true for pastor's daughters who need to go to college. Um, no, but for material needs of the actual needy in the church who are godly, faithful. For instance, in Timothy, it's surprising that a widow could only be considered and added to the role of care if what? She had to be over 60 years old. She had to be faithful and have, like, godly children. Anything else? Yeah, she had to be ministering actively. She couldn't be just watching Jeopardy at home. Right? Like, like she, I mean, she couldn't only be watching Jeopardy at home. I and mean, it's like Jeopardy is a particular, like, wait, you watched Jeopardy last week? No help for you. Um, okay. Um, also, they provide administrative help. In fact, you know, I mentioned this before. I'm going to say it again. Our goal is, and you could be super helpful with this goal, um, we want all of our deacons and all of our pastors to visit all of our church family members. So if you're an attender and you're planning on joining, join fast if you want to visit. Um, but, but that means, hopefully, I mean, it could be possible someone gets missed. Maybe you're not super available or uh, the pastors and deacons who are assigned to you have a long, hard list to get through and you're kind of spiritually, you're surviving, so we let you go. I, I mean, it could happen. But our goal is to meet with everyone this summer. And so the deacons are taking a lot of that. We, just, we assume that with both deacons and pastors overlapping, that, that we will get spiritual care for our whole church this summer, personally, in your homes. It's one of the reasons why that Sunday evening service being held off is, is helpful. But the reason I, I, I just, it's helpful for you to know this. We're not asking for a visit because we think you're in trouble. We're not going to show up at your door and be like, hey, we heard. Um, no. If we've heard something, maybe we will. But that's not why we're doing this. Don't be afraid. Please help us to schedule it. Get that done. Our goal is to spend about an hour with each of our families and really just understand where you're at spiritually. And so I would also add, if you would like that and you want to be proactive and reach out to uh, Stacy and let her know, you would really appreciate that ministry. You help us by saying, hey, I would love to have that. I'm available here, here, here. If someone can come by, that would be wonderful. Because it is, it's a, that's a lot of logistical work. And so the deacons are helping the pastors try to minister to all of our church families this, this year. Um, our congregation's role then. Uh, congregation is the highest level of authority for certain decisions. And putting this, let me just say this, our American government has been framed by copying congregationalism from the church. So the reason America is the way it is is because they stole their governance out of the church. So when you think of a congregational church and it looks a little bit like the American government, that's because America plagiarized. For real. Like I've had people criticize congregationalism. It's like, oh, you're just that way because you're American. It's like, no, no, no. America is that way because of congregationalism. Historically, that's what happened. Um, so that being the case then, if you think about the way our government is supposed to be, our government is a servant of the people. They serve and lead as people who are of the people, and they serve for the benefit of the people, supposedly. So that should be the church leaders. We hold to a form of church government that is congregationally ruled and plural elder-led. So I, I am not taking um, congregational authority to mean the congregation should tell me what to preach. I think 2 Timothy makes it clear that people do not always want to hear what they need to hear. And so the preacher needs to lead on what he preaches. The pastor needs to lead on the teaching. 
But generally speaking, when it comes to finances, when it comes to governance, when it comes to major decisions, for instance, buying of property, things like that, even the hiring and firing of elders, that's one of the edits in the Constitution we're talking about, um, voting on in June, is going to be something that the congregation has the say in, ultimately speaking. So that's what we're saying when congregationally ruled, plural elder, elder led. So knowing that then, this statement of faith becomes very important for mutual accountability. Because the statement of faith is a statement that governs what we teach. So that's, some, that's one of the ways in which the congregation actually is an authority over the teaching. Right? And that statement of faith, all teachers, pastors, everyone, submits to the congregational affirmation of the statement of faith. Statement of faith not only is one of the ways we manage what is taught at Crossway, it's also something that unites us. We all believe this. And again, if you read our statement of faith, it's not, generally speaking, getting into the weeds. It's like we believe there is one triune God. If you don't believe that, you cannot be saved. If you believe that, there, that God is not triune and you take away the deity of Christ, you're not saved. Um. So it unites us around a core system of beliefs, and it also clarifies where we stand. So some of those statements in, the, in our doctrinal statement just make it clear where we are on in interpretation of various things. For instance, I mean, I, I think in our statement of faith, we would say something like the church is a body of believers. Historically speaking, not all churches have had Christians only as members. It's such a normal thing for me, it's hard to imagine having a church filled with non-believers. But that was Calvin's church. And when the city council hires you to be pastor, you've got secular people not only in your church, but leading your church. Um, so it, it clarifies where we stand. Okay, so doctrinal disagreement. I think this is important because in our doctrinal statement, where it's mostly the first order list. But first order things are things that you have to be have to believe to be saved. So generally speaking, it's gospel truth or closely associated gospel truth. Right? You know, I just mentioned um, Trinity. I think you have to believe in the Trinity to be saved. Do you have to believe in the resurrection to be saved? Yes. So if you don't believe in the bodily resurrection of Christ, I don't think you're saved. Now, I do think some of that stuff, like every once in a while I'll meet someone as a, who I think is probably a genuine Christian who doesn't understand very well, but they're not denying it. I think there's a difference. So some of you might have been like, what, man, I'm not sure I really understand the Trinity. Maybe I'm not saved. I would suggest to you that if you don't reject it, then, then we, can, we can teach and instruct, and you will, through the grace of the Holy Spirit, embrace truth. Second order are beliefs that are significantly different, but a person can still believe them and be saved. For instance, mode of baptism. Um, I've mentioned Presbyterians, and not because they're bad people, but because I think, especially your conservative Presbyterians, are very good Christians. And I would consider them brothers and sisters in the faith when I meet a faithful Presbyterian. I don't think their baptism is valid. Most, most Presbyterians sprinkle, and will often sprinkle as babies. And I, I don't think that's the pattern of the New Testament, nor do I believe that's the doctrine of baptism done well. So every once in a while, we'll get a sweet believer who comes in and really loves our church, but is baptized as a baby. We require baptism, believer's baptism by immersion to be a member. 
But what do we do with someone who doesn't agree doctrinally, but is willing to submit practically? So generally speaking, we'd say, well, there's a couple of really good churches in town that you might find more comfortable. We're not saying that because we want to get rid of you. We're saying that because we don't want to, we don't want your Christian faith in the assembly to be an afflicted and, and painful expression of your faith. Right? We don't want any time Pastor Mark mentions baptism by immersion for your soul to be hurt. You know, so if you're going to be in constant sorrow here because every time we talk about baptism, you don't agree, you're going to find those churches more comfortable. But if that's not a big deal for you, if that's not going to be a concern for you, maybe you can join happily here. But you would have to do this. You would generally have to be unified in the sense of you're not going to like try to change our constitution. You're not going to lead a revolt and try to change the church. Um, but that may be really hard. So we would probably recommend for that person to find a different church. And if they can't, we'd ask them to just happily join here. Third order beliefs are those that they're reasonably different, in which case we get it. Again, we just ask for unity, and it's okay to be different. And you're not going to find that probably a grief to your soul. So how to disagree? On first order, you can't be a member because you're probably not a Christian. Right? Like, if you don't believe in the resurrection of Christ, and we have a saved church membership, what we'd ask, and, and I say this in all sincerity, if you're not sure you're saved, but you want to join our church, we would love the opportunity to work with you. We're excited about you coming and, and asking that question, because we really want to see people know that they have life that God gives, right? That's the whole purpose First John has, has been written, so that you'd know you have life, all right? On second order, we would, we would call you to a serious uh, consideration. We would welcome you. We think you'd be welcomed by our church membership. But we also realize there are certain situations in which it would be kind of painful for you to stay. And so we just ask for you to take, take careful thought and make a decision and then be joyful in your decision. So don't, don't grudgingly join our church and then be frustrated with us for being who we are. We told you who we were. It's in our doctrinal statement we told you to read. Um, but we'll try to be gracious with you. So if you are, if you are kind of from a Presbyterian background, I'm not going to particularly like use an illustration that describes you on purpose. Every once in a while, and this happened a couple weeks ago, my daughter's like, were you talking about me? I'm like, no, I didn't even think about you. And she's like, oh, you just totally described me. I think everyone in the church was thinking about me. I'm like, yeah, I suppose. I wasn't even thinking about that. I wouldn't, I wouldn't do on purpose any illustrations that like just grind your soul. Um, but you never know. I can accidentally stumble on those things. I can be a bull in a china shop. So you're welcome to. <laughs> well, that can happen. Um, third order, I, I think that's just normal Christian living. If we all believe the exact same thing, probably someone's not thinking. You know, so, so we want to be a church that has a, a lot of generosity towards those who disagree about the things in Scripture that are less clear. So if scripture's not totally clear, or it's an application of a scriptural principle for which people are going to have different consciences, we would just appeal to Romans 14 to be really gracious with other people's consciences, be very careful not to offend others' consciences, and not make it a matter of division or friction. So just be really thoughtful about how you engage that. All right, any questions on those things? Liz? Yes?
Where did we just moved in our constitution? I wouldn't have said it's a first order thing. I think I would go second order in their division. I think we just actually moved it in our constitution to core, uh, is it distinctives or core beliefs? It moved to core beliefs. So women not being pastors. So let me just, like, historically, that has usually been the dividing line between theological liberals who aren't saved and churches who are faithful to the gospel. Like, historically, that's been the dividing line is when you give up on that issue. I feel like the dividing line, like, in recent years, moved to, to gay marriage, where it's like all of a sudden the faithful churches said no on, on homosexuality, homosexual clergy, or gay marriage. The faithful churches said that. The churches who've, who've like, pulled up the anchor of faithfulness to the Scripture are much more willing to be moldable on that issue to whatever culture says. The, and they'll, they'll frame it something like an expression of love, right? Like we, we believe in faithfulness and commitment to your partner versus like heterosexual marriage. But I think historically, the dividing line on women leading has been one of those dividing lines on faithful churches versus, when I say liberal, please don't hear me to think like Democrat, Republican. When I say liberal, I mean that in a historical Christian sense where the same people who doubt the miracles of scripture or the supernatural works of Christ they doubt the physical resurrection of Christ. The churches that were kind of like moving towards an evolutionary approach to Genesis, those churches historically, one of the beginning earmarks of their choice to uh, move away from a careful faithfulness to Scripture was women in leadership, just historically. So I, am, I, I think for us it's a pretty clear core belief in the sense that this is what the Bible says, we're going to submit to it. And that's that. So if you guys have any, I mean, like, I know that's not super graciously said, but I, 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 the reason, I think, is actually historically really important. Am I? What does our Constitution now say, Caleb? I'm asking you because you, like, worked on it yesterday. So I, I think you would have to agree. I, I know what you're saying, Charity. I, I think what we would say is, like, that cannot be a matter for which you fight or which you bring up division. And it would not be something that I would, I would think you should disagree on. I think the Bible is so clear on. But if you believe that, I would, I'd be really fascinated on the how you get there. Charity's question was, yeah, th thanks. I realize you might not have heard. Do you have to believe that to be a member? The answer basically is no, you don't have to agree, but you have to agree to support it which is a really challenging thing if you believe really strongly. Yeah, you can't, you can't cause dissension. So in small group, you're not going to be like, hey, I know we're going to talk about how to study the book of Jonah, but tonight we're going to talk about ladies in church. And then you start, you like take that opportunity to kind of get a little bit of your soapbox and talk about how women should be leading. I mean, let's just be honest. Some of the smartest, most godly people you know are women. This is not about worth or godliness or wisdom. We have incredibly godly, faithful women in our church. Um, this is simply, I mean, I, like I really take it this way. God says it. If my king tells me to do something, I don't get to reason myself into disobedience and call myself faithful. I just need to submit. And, and I, I like, at some point as a parent, I think every parent has to do that sometime with their kids. Like, hey, I know you don't get it. I clearly can't communicate clearly enough to you for you to get it. So I'm just asking you to obey. And, and that's, that's kind of how I feel on this one.
and just, I mean, right? Like, I don't know why, I, I don't understand all of why God says what he says. But if I had to understand it all before I would submit, I think there's something lacking in just my obedience to Christ. Um, so that's, that's why I think it should be where we have it in our Constitution now. And I think that's why as a church we should be faithful to it. All right, any other questions, comments? No snide remarks either. All right, so here's a snide remark you should have. We're just starting lesson three. We're finishing week three. We haven't started lesson three. So I'm like a full week behind at this point. I knew it was coming. That's why I warned you at the beginning. Um, lesson three is actually fairly simple. I, I will go faster in lesson three for your sakes because a lot of it's dealing with getting involved in ministries. My hope is that, as I'm speaking to a lot of current members here, that you're already deeply involved in ministry. You're sacrificing richly for the cause of Christ within our church family. But if not, make sure you flip through those ministries and consider how you can amplify your reward in eternity by being faithful today in the cause of Christ. Um, I think there are many people in the church who think they are sacrificing deeply by minimal work within the church because it's so much more than the average person. When I look at what Scripture calls us to within the church life, I think God calls us to deep sacrifice. And he unapologetically binds you to the church family you're in and calls you to minister to them, to love them, to care for them, and to be like Christ who died for them. And so that would be my encouragement for all of you. So next week we'll jump into lesson three and I'll finish lesson four, Lord willing, the same week. So next week, I got to do three and four. So, and, and some of you cessationists are saying, we stopped believing in miracles a while ago. So <laughs> we're not sure it'll happen. Let me close with a word of prayer. I thought it was worth going through separation a little more clearly. That's one of the reasons I took the time to do that, because it is present among us. All right, let's pray. Father in heaven, I ask that you would give us all the humility and grace to submit to your word. Uh, there are many things within the scriptures that we don't understand the purpose of, nor do we have a, a good grasp on the, um, the theology behind it, the, the way scripture brings us to a place that we should embrace, but we sometimes don't know why we should embrace it. So Lord, I pray that you would just give us uh, a willingness to submit to scripture in all areas of life. I ask that you would help our church to be people who are constantly reading the Bible, that we would be people who are saturated with the truth of your word, that our words would be life-giving, that they'd be filled with wisdom, that they would be seasoned with grace, that they would encourage people who hear, and that they would draw people to look to Christ and be awed by the Savior, that they might be drawn to trust in him more and to be more like him. Father, I ask for our church that you would strengthen our health, that you would build us up in the faith, that you would help us as a body to be more like our Savior. We ask for these things because it would honor you, but also because we need your help. And so we ask through the ministry of your spirit that you might make us like Christ. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.